I'm Emily Drashensky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ida Stetman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, we have a jam-packed show, as many people have come to expect, uh, filled with different topics across the spectrum. Um, I'm going to start with one that sadly sets the tone, I think, for a lot of the conversation about that Wall Street Journal poll that made big waves um, on Monday. Then we're going to talk with Inez about the tragic shooting at a Christian school outside of Nashville. Uh, ben is going to be talking about how the IRS showed up at Matt Taibbi's door the day he was testifying in Congress about the Twitter files. And then Josh is going to take us home with a conversation about the judicial reform meltdown in Israel. So let me kick it off by starting with this poll. Again, I think it's it's accurate to say it sets the tone for a lot of the conversation we're going to have. Um, oh, it's a Wall Street Journal NORC poll. The Wall Street Journal published it on Monday morning with a big headline that said, America pulls back from values that once defined it, WSJ NORC poll finds. I saw this covered all over conservative media. It was all over Fox News um, because there's a obviously a narrative here. And these are numbers that quantify, I think, something that a lot of people have sensed. Now, when whether the numbers are perfectly accurate, I think is a decent question. Patrick Ruffini over at Echelon Insights has a good Substack piece. Um, why this extremely viral poll result might not be real, that's on his Substack. But I would still emphasize, um, even if you look at numbers from Gallup that Ruffini points people to on patriotism, the trend is going down over time. What caught a lot of people's attention in the Wall Street Journal NORC poll is this very steep dip from 1998 to 2023 um, of people who say these values are very important to them. Uh, patriotism goes from 70% to 38%. Religion goes from 62% to 39%. Having children goes from 59% to 30%. Community involvement goes from 47% to 27%. And then money goes up. It goes from 31% to 43%. Ruffini's chief issue with this poll is that uh, the numbers that were taken in 2023, the poll that was taken in 2023, had a different methodology. And that is a very, very, very fair complaint. Uh, again, it's worth emphasizing that the numbers from 1998 to 2019, these are almost all trending down with one exception, which is community involvement, which according to those numbers seems to go up between 1998 and 2019. All that is to say, um, it, it puts numbers onto trends that people sense kind of innately. As I said earlier, it's, it's really hard to quantify these things. It's really hard to you know, sort of throw proof out um, because it's just something that a lot of people notice in their communities and around them. Um, the the number about patriotism, again, even if you look at Gallup, Gallup has that number um, going in a really sad direction. It's around 87% of people say they're extremely very proud to be an American back in 2002, down to 65% with the exact same methodology over that 20-year time. Um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, steep drop off that that 20% um, is, is certainly meaningful. Uh, on that note, let me toss this open to the group. What do you make of these numbers? Um, did you have the same reaction that a lot of people, uh, a lot of other people had that said, this is you know what we've been feeling sort of put into data? Um, what are your thoughts? I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I have like a top line takeaway here. It's really just kind of confirmation of so much of which 
you know, myself and us and the rest of us have, I think, been able to kind of anecdotally observe with our own eyes. I mean, there's been any number of kind of Pew and Gallup surveys over the years that show declining church attendance. I mean, you know, there's the so-called rise of the nose referring to no affiliation when it comes to kind of institutional religious affiliation here. And there fundamentally is just a crisis of meaning that is pervading across Western societies right now. And you see that crisis of meaning playing out in all sorts of sordid ways. I think Emily was totally accurate when she talks about how this, you know, we chose to lead with this topic for this episode for a reason. I think this kind of just, this does lay the groundwork for much of what is to follow about things like this horrific shooting in Tennessee, um, uh, about the unrest in Israel, which directly mirrors kind of the post-2016 unrest in the United States after the election of Donald Trump, all of which is is fundamentally stemming, I think, from a crisis of meaning, a a, a decline in, in, in tradition, religion, and the percentage of people who adhere to a traditional religion and look, and look for sources of meaning in alternative places and various nooks and crannies, only ultimately to discover, usually tragically, that these new, more modern purported sources of meaning are fundamentally and intrinsically unable to deliver the same satisfaction and meaning that the more time-tested and, frankly, just capital T, true sources of meaning are fundamentally able to provide people as well. So um, uh, nothing particularly new here. Some of these numbers, I, I, I think, really are jarring. The patriotism number that Emily flagged was uh, nuts. I, I mean, I, I definitely kind of like my eyes jumped out my socket when I saw that there. But uh, you know, tragically speaking, you know, for, for like millennials and Gen Z, if you if you are a patriotic millennial or Gen Z, you are inescapably in the minority at this point. So um, nothing particularly new here, I thought, rather just confirmation um, and pretty galling confirmation when it gets to some of these, when it gets to some of these statistics as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I agree with Josh. I think um, what these results show is that we've ditched the old gods of the city, but we have nothing to replace them with. Um, you know, Mary Eberstadt has done some great work in her book, Primal Screams, about basically, um, you know, how human beings have defined themselves and i use that phrase uh you know advisedly how human beings have thought about that question like who are we you know who am i um and essentially the the traditional and historical and frankly human bases to answer those questions have always been in relation one to god right which is i am in in the image of god uh two in relation to family right like i am a wife a daughter a mother, right, a sister, um, and and three at the like sort of most abstract to some extent, but not fully level. You know, I'm a member of a tribe, right? I'm a member of a nation, um, and and we can talk. <laughs> there's a lot of like differences to suss out between those two things, but um, I think psychologically those things perform similar functions. And what we're seeing in this poll, and actually, I read the Ruffini um, Substack, and I came away not convinced um, that the the flaws in the methodology were as bad as as he seemed to think they were. Um, regardless, I think you could probably duplicate this results, if not these exact numbers um, in, in a different poll and find the same thing. It very much comports with, I think, what we observe around uh, around us, as Emily noted. So um, I, I think that basically those, those poll numbers um, and the general sense that there are no bases uh, for trust um, for a real and stable human identity um, and that those those things have been replaced by, I think I think still think the best encapsulation um, of of the sort of the weak 
uh, weak sauce that has replaced this this um, traditional bases of human identity uh, is is the Anthony Kennedy line, right? About you know being able to eke out your own meaning of the universe, and it turns out that that causes a, a lot of instability um, and and an inability to function with the human condition um, fundamentally. So I think that's what we're seeing in these pool numbers. I, I they're not surprising in in the least, um, but I do think they're reflective of everything that Emily was pointing to about the and, and Josh was pointing to about the larger crisis of meaning in the West. Yeah, stated a different way, I think that these figures are a measure of the success of the left's long march through all of our institutions. I mean, they this is the consequence. This is the victory of prioritizing material and man over the things that are deeper and more fundamental and God and trying to make man God. And it leads to all sorts of perverse consequences, of course, in society as well. So decline in devotion to God or faith, a family, the and the imperative to actually civilize via creating a family and leave something of lasting worth on earth. And then, of course, love of country. All of these just follow, I think, axiomatically from uh, a progressive takeover of our institutions. And, you know, I think the question, which we're probably all grappling with to some extent, is does the pendulum swing ultimately, or does this auger just a downward spiral and the death of a great civilization uh, in relatively short time relative to other civilizations throughout the history of mankind? And you know, that's what we're grappling with you know, pretty much every episode of this show. But I think it really is the question. Does the pendulum swing back or is this sort of a, a linear and maybe at some point, you know, an exponential fall off and decline? Uh, but by the same token, the fact that people are evidently searching for meaning, I think, does, you know, should give us some modicum of hope that ultimately they find it in the right places rather than in, in politics or uh, equating their faith with politics. The only other thing I'll point out that I did find kind of interesting, if you looked at the entirety of the poll results, 63% of the people in the survey said companies shouldn't take public stands on social and political issues. That's somewhat surprising, I think, based upon these other numbers in these other areas of God, family, and country. And then another aspect was people were a lot less favorably disposed towards pronouns generally, even the use of gender pronouns generally, including among the young than I suspected. I think it was those under 35, 30% viewed favorably the idea of using the favored gender pronouns of uh, what a person declares them to be. I thought that was kind of interesting uh, in juxtaposition with some of the other figures that we saw. Well, on that note, um, Inez, let's transition over to your segment um, and the, on, the, on the tragedy that unfolded yesterday. We're taping this on Tuesday in Tennessee. Right. So it falls to me to lay out the tragic facts of the situation. There was a shooting at a school, a private Christian school, Covenant Elementary, um, in, outside of Nashville, as Emily said, that killed uh, three nine-year-old kids and three adults. Um, the the shooter, whose name I'm not going to say, um, in, in keeping with the way that at least I try to talk about these issues, uh, because I think the media factor here is so important, Um the shooter is 28. Um, she was a former student. Uh, she's a, a female to male transgender. She was killed by the police um, in the course of this, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, 
she has a manifesto. I think we should basically ignore beyond the basic facts of motive. Um, a few more, I think, relevant facts. She had to shoot through locked doors, um, which is is something that hasn't happened in, in some of the other shootings and I think is, is worth looking at when we talk about hardening schools, for example. Um, she actually did have to shoot through locked doors in this case. Apparently, you know, just locking the doors is not enough, but there may be a, a, a way of, of hardening the, the door and the entrances to the school um, that, that won't cause too much disruption generally to, to um, schools. Um, this is a private school. This is, has not happened um, very frequently at, at private schools. Um, and so that's another unusual aspect of this, along with the fact that the, the shooter is biologically female. Um, very rare, again, uh, to have a, a biologically female shooter. Um, I think one of the question marks that we can explore on this in this uh, as more facts come out is the role of, of testosterone and whether she was taking high doses of testosterone. Um, so, and, and then before before we get to sort of the, the media coverage and the politics of, of this event, um, I just want to commend officers Rex Engelbert and Michael Colazzo um, and the rest of their team. Those are the two names the officers they have released. Uh, this is not a Uvalde situation. The police have done us all proud on this. The, the video footage shows them acting incredibly quickly um, moving into the building quickly, running towards gunfire efficiently after like efficiently starting to search the building. When they hear the gunfire, they run towards it. They did a few things that the Uvalde officers told us was impossible, including immediately, uh, immediately entering the building when they, when they arrived and running towards the gunfire, as I said, uh, half went in with handguns against an AR. Apparently, um, we were told that that is impossible and too dangerous for the officers in Uvalde to do. Um, so I, I really think the, the officers here are, are, uh, heroes and, and deserve, um, our praise and respect for their actions in this. Um, you know, turning to the the sort of political side of this, um, obviously there are only several uh, media narratives and this one kind of confounds um, uh, that usually when there is this kind of shooting, um, it is either a, a gun control um, media cycle, right? Or um, it's a white supremacy media cycle. So usually it's determined on the, on the race of the perpetrator, right? Um, that those are those are those are the predictable sort of Kravitz style um, media narratives. Now, in this case, um, there there is this factor where uh, the the media did not want to report initially was unclear on how to report the gender identity of the killer. Um, initially, it was put out that it was a woman, and then um, the New York Times was fretting about like how to how to describe this person, right? And and uh, her pronouns are apparently he him. So. Um, you know, so then you have this 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 uh, additional hiccup in the media cycle as all of these leftist publications, these legacy publications, try to accurately describe um, the the person uh, who perpetuated this killing. Um, and finally, uh, you know, th th there are consequences to um, making conservative speech and policy, uh, terming it violence. Right. Um, we, we don't know still the full uh, motives of, of this shooting, um, but there is some evidence that this shooter, first of all, targeted a Christian school, um, was a former student of the school. Um, and uh, again, there are consequences, as I said, to to uh, pretending that, for example, stating the reality of biological sex is, uh, quote unquote, violence and, quote unquote, you know, uh, driving trans people to suicide. It, it's not that large a, a jump from uh, you're killing us with your words to we're going to respond to your words with violence because that's what they are. 
Um, and, and I think that's an important sort of aspect of all of this. But with that, I'll, I'll throw it out to the, the rest of you to discuss uh, whether the, the facts of the shooting um, themselves or, or the media response or the way that we will likely see this political news cycle play out. So we're recording this very shortly after the body cam footage of the national police officers responding was released. Uh, I just want to briefly echo Inez um, in giving our heartfelt thanks and salute of courage and really all that you can possibly say about the police officers who responded this quickly. The, the, the video is, is, is worth watching. I mean, I mean, the way that they kind of just systemically go down the halls kind of door by door, you know, classroom by classroom, really, it, it is just, uh, it, it is so difficult to kind of look at that and then look back at what happened in Uvalde. And 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 it just kind of underscores that we need more brave, heroic men uh, and women, obviously, to, to, to be police officers. And, you know, one of my first thoughts was just how much the whole horrific war on cops narrative and, and all the terrible, vicious rhetoric just further disincentivizes good, brave, courageous men from answering the call like those Nashville police officers did. So thanks again to that. Um, I, I do want to just briefly touch on the obvious third rail political topic here, which is the fact that this has all the makings of an anti-Christian hate crime from a transgender person. And we should await the manifesto to say that explicitly, but Senator Josh Hawley, Missouri, to his great credit, is already out there the day that we're recording calling on the FBI and DHS to investigate this as an anti-Christian hate crime. I do want to also point out that Luke Rosiak of, of the Daily Wire has noted that the shooting of this school comes the same week that activists scheduled a, quote, trans day of violence, uh, excuse me, trans day of vengeance. And the trans day of vengeance group actually also was offering firearms training. Even worse than that, um, Luke has a screenshot here on Twitter Trans Radical Activist Network retweeted specifically a call for violence in Tennessee. So, um, like I said, we should await the manifesto before, like, fully and finally connecting the dots here. But, um, you know, frankly, there's a little bit of what's good for the goose is good for the gander here. I mean, I despise this whole kind of jumping to kind of politically weaponize these just unbearable and unspeakable kind of kind of mass shootings. But... You know, the left does it time and time again. They always talk about white supremacy. And here we have a transgender individual, a former student shooting up a private Christian school, having to shoot through locks to get in. Again, we don't have the manifesto yet, but this looks like an anti-Christian hate crime and it should be called as such. My first uh, question, one of my first questions was uh, precisely about this issue of testosterone. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly rare to see this an act like this committed by a woman. Um, we know that there's a pattern of identity among mass shooters. They tend to be male. Um, and I think it's it's going to raise a very important conversation about what these hormones can do to women. Um, it should be a, a big wake up call for everyone if it turns out that's the case. And finally, my quick point is uh, just to amplify something Roger said on Twitter, which is this is a masculinity. What we saw from those police officers is a masculinity rooted in virtue. And um, one thing I just want to add to that is the juxtaposition of um, the, the shooter, uh, somebody who felt like they wanted to seek the sort of artificial sense of masculinity, um, which by the way, is the case with some 
male shooters too. They're they're looking. They're they're sort of groping for um, a way to be uh, masculine. They're they're we we see this over and over again. Um, they don't have fathers. They are sort of at sea, um, lost at sea, and just floating in this uh, postmodern ether. Um, the juxtaposition of of one sort of solution, um, one healthy channeling of this angst and a very unhealthy channeling of this angst raises the question of whether Uvalde is exceptional or whether Nashville is exceptional. Or if uh, we're so sort of fractured and splintered, there is no norm in this country. We don't have an expectation that what happened in Nashville is what happens in every single community in this country um, affected or, or that finds itself in a situation like this. I think that's an open question. Um, and sadly, an open question, it shouldn't be. I don't know that it would have been in a previous era of uh, the country's lifespan. But uh, it, de it definitely, I think, goes to some of the questions we talked about in the poll. If your instinct is to act like the officers in Nashville, um, maybe your community is, is stronger and healthier um, to begin with. I don't know the answer to that question, but I think these are some of the conversations worth having right now. I think my reflexive kind of response to what transpired uh, yesterday, and we're recording this Wednesday, is that we live in a society which is uh, all too sick, in which pathologies are not only accepted and permitted to proliferate, but celebrated. Um, thank God the cops acted admirably and courageously here, which is sort of the opposite side of that coin. In fact, in spite of as Josh noted, the attacks on the cops and cops, of course, have failed in all too many situations. Uh, we don't know yet how many red flags were triggered that were allowed to slip on by to permit a tragedy like this to transpire. We'll see down the road uh, as we get a more full accounting of everything that transpired. Um, you know, the notion of obviously we have to talk about you know, was there drug usage involved? What was the mental profile of this person who was clearly suffering from gender dysphoria? And how does that relate to their actions? The fact that these are third rails, I think, shows you how indefensible the positions are of those who are on, I guess, the other side of the transgender debates. What this should be about is we have to have a safe and healthy society. And clearly, there are measures that are not working to keep that society uh, healthy and and safe. And I would just note, you know, is the Justice Department going to look into this trans day of of, of vengeance? Uh, I have not heard Merrick Garland say anything about it. Obviously, to Josh's point, there's the anti-Christian hate crime on this as well. And the last point I make is just it's it's eerily prescient that uh, Tucker Carlson was talking about transgender individuals uh, up in New England who are increasingly purchasing guns. And purportedly to defend themselves. But here you have an aggressor actually going out and clearly taking on a Christian school. Uh, it's a sick and depraved act. And I'm, I'm glad that we're not using this person's name. And I agree, we shouldn't give this person's manifesto a second of notice, but for the motive aspect of this. Um, so with that, I'll uh, move to myself, a completely different topic, um, which concerns the uh, once again, potential weaponization of the administrative state, the deep administrative state against those who would dare to dissent from it. So several weeks back, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, uh, so-called journalists as a ranking member, Stacey Plaskey of the House Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Weaponization referred to them 
testified that America was suffering under a censorship industrial complex, as they termed it. And during that testimony, Taibbi noted that this was maybe the gravest abuse of the government that he'd ever seen in the way of this pervasive censorship regime that's been imposed on us by many three-letter alphabet soup agencies in tandem with big tech, in tandem with often government-funded think tanks, fact checkers, other NGOs, so-called fact checkers, other NGOs, et cetera. Well, now we find out that at the very moment that Taibbi was testifying in Washington, D.C., an IRS visit, curiously, paid a visit to his house, left a letter uh, in which he called for Taibbi to call the IRS within four days. And we're still learning some details of why this IRS agent went to his home that day. Uh, but what we do know is that Taibbi was told in that call, this is according to both reporting from the Wall Street Journal and a letter which Jim Jordan, who chairs that weaponization subcommittee, has now publicly released regarding this meeting by an IRS agent, that Taibbi was told to, in a call with an agent, an IRS agent, that both his 2018 and 2021 tax returns had been rejected purportedly over identity theft. Taibbi apparently was never made aware that there were identity theft issues around that 2018 return. There were some issues around the 2021 return, uh, which he noted had nothing to do with monetary issues. And then, in fact, the IRS actually owes him a considerable sum of money. And basically, it's, at least as the Wall Street Journal suggests, it's highly irregular for an IRS agent to show up at one's house as opposed to issuing a formal letter, working through one's accountants, Etc. So basic questions are, why would an IRS agent show up at Taibbi's house over purported concerns about privacy? Why would the IRS agent do so on the very day he's testifying in Washington about the weaponization of the administrative state against the public and against dissenters like himself, effectively, by writing the Twitter files and testifying to this censorship industrial complex? And Jim Jordan, in a letter to both Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, as well as the IRS Commissioner, basically asked some of these basic questions about what led up to this agent going to Taibbi's house. Uh, he refers to it as a thinly veiled attempt to influence or intimidate a witness before Congress. Taibbi, for his part, says he's not going to comment on the issue until Congressman Jordan and the subcommittee actually get relevant documents from the relevant agencies. Worth noting, though, that this also follows on something we discussed before, the FTC harassing Elon Musk and asking for all of his communications and Twitter's communications with the likes of named journalists, including Taibbi. And it also follows on Democrats during that weaponization subcommittee hearing badgering Taibbi and Schellenberger to essentially give up their sources uh, in a really tyrannical and, frankly, authoritarian move to use the Democrats' terms. Uh, in my view, a couple points worth making. Uh, beyond the fact that, obviously, it seems very clear the administrative state goes after anyone who dares to not only dissent, but exposes its depredations. Beyond that, Taibbi and Schellenberger in particular, I think, are viewed as traitors to their class because these are people of the left, of the traditional left, truly, I guess, more liberal traditional left. And they are pursuing stories without fear or favor, including those that expose 
what would have been their former allies, what Democrats thought would be their fellow partisans. But instead, they're actually doing their jobs because they're doing their jobs. It's exposing Democrat, the Democrat deep state collusion that has led to all of these abuses of our liberties. And consequently, Schellenberger and Taibbi and, of course, the likes of Glenn Greenwald and others on the traditional left are particularly hated. And that is why, of course, journalists in the corporate media who have become stenographers for our deep state themselves are not rushing to the defense of journalists when they always rush to the defense of journalists to the extent they view them as being imperiled by authorities. So there's a lot to unpack here. We obviously don't know what uh, what kind of excuse the IRS is going to come up with to justify sending an agent. The best they could probably say at 0.0001% chance is that they're so incompetent that the agencies aren't talking to each other and wouldn't know that on that particular day he's testifying. But I think that strains credulity. Curious your all thoughts about this clearly, I think, chilling and disconcerting episode. Yeah, well, uh, I think very simply put, right, these agencies have lost the benefit of the doubt. Um, and it's worth pointing out every time I feel like a broken record, but every time we discuss this, um, you know, lo nothing happened to Lois Lerner under the Obama administration. Um, when it became clear through hearings that the IRS had targeted Tea Party groups um, to try to decertify their, their essentially their tax status, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, the IRS had targeted Americans on a political basis and nothing was done about that. And she was allowed to sail off into the sunset. Um, and so this is this is not new, but, and again, I think that they have completely lost the benefit of the doubt. I think we have to acknowledge that we live in a society, we live under a regime that um, will target political opposition uh, using the administrative state. I think that that's really clear after the four years of the Trump administration, and it will continue to be clear. And, and um, I mean, frankly, I know like the 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 Dave Reboy's phrase, uh, know what time it is, is a popular, uh, popular to the point of cliche on this on this podcast and in the NatCon sphere in general. Uh, but yeah, you know, the primary thing that people should take away from this is this is the shape of the regime under which we live. Um, and that means that we should be thinking about um, how how to respond to that within within that regime and uh, what we can do about it. And, and I don't have any easier, quick answers beyond it's very, very clear that the administrative state is politically weaponized um, and that the idea of this, this Wilsonian idea of this neutral uh, neutral administrative bureaucracy that just carries out the aims of Congress and the president uh, without adding their own political opinions to the mix. Um, th this was always a fantasy, this kind of government without actual politics. Um, and and the, the solution very well may be to repoliticize in a actually accountable and democratic, small d democratic way, these agencies. And that means giving elected officials the power to hire and fire them uh, and to make or break their careers and possibly in implementing something along the lines of Andrew Jackson's rotation in office, not allowing this class of, of very powerful bureaucrats to stay permanently in Washington as the politicians that allegedly are supposed to be in charge of them uh, go in and out depending on elections. And just quickly, I'd say, yes, the administrative, the, the left, I think is, and, and maybe even Taibbi would uh, concede this at this point, but I think the left has been blind for a long time to the weaponization of the uh, ever bloated administrative state. Um, and, you know, it's not that they don't think it's it's possible, of course, and probably would still make the argument that we need an administrative state, a robust administrative state of some sort, um, and, and should just put guardrails in place to prevent this from happening. Uh, but when you look at 
the poll to be kind of a, a little bit of a hack here and make things come a little bit full circle. If you look at the poll we started with from the Wall Street Journal, the project of having even a Wilsonian sort of utopian sense of uh, or ideal of an administrative state becomes very difficult when you can't agree on basic values that fundamentally undergird a healthy society. If you have a big chunk of the population that doesn't uh, believe in the, the country fundamentally, that doesn't want to pass on a legacy to children, et cetera, et cetera, um, then even if it's not the majority, you're going to have that same in the administrative state inevitably, and things are going to start to go south really quickly. Well, I am just positively shocked that an administrative state that voted approximately at a 95% cliff for Hillary, for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election has been weaponized against perceived allies of the political right. And notice that I'm not even saying conservatives because I don't really view Matt Taibbi as, as, as a conservative. I mean, in this particular context, given his connection to the Twitter files and Elon Musk, he is probably being perceived by most out there as an ally of the right, the same way that, that, that a Barry Weiss might be perceived as an ally of the right. But I don't think, I don't think Matt Taibbi is, is a conservative necessarily. But look, I, I mean, when we talk here, I, Inez obviously is right about, um, you know, knowing what time it is and, 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 and all of that here. But I, I, I look, I, I come back to, my exhortation, which I repeat seemingly every week on this particular show, uh, which is the only way out is through. I mean, it is one thing to kind of just, you know, observe on and on that the regime is targeting its foes. I mean, it, this is it, undeniable. It is undeniable that the American ruling class through the deep state big tech apparatus that Ben has written and spoken about at such great length, it is undeniable that they are weaponizing this entire apparatus to try to subjugate all of their various foes and make them toe the line. The only relevant question at this point, the only relevant remaining question is whether the right will muster the courage and the fortitude and the conviction to fight fire with fire within the confines of reason, prudence, and the rule of law, and to reciprocate in term in an attempt to rebalance this pendulum and get us back to a basic playing field of sanity. Civilizational sanity really should be the end goal here. But let's transition to our final topic of the show here. Uh, civilizational sanity is actually, I think, a, a very nice segue to our final topic here. I want to provide an update on the extremely frenzied and chaotic situation over in Israel pertaining to their roiling controversy over the Netanyahu government's efforts to reform their out-of-control judiciary so an extremely brief recap here, um, uh, uh, starting in the 1990s, the liberal Chief Justice Aaron Barak pronounced a constitutional revolution for the Israeli Supreme Court. He arrogated to the Supreme Court unprecedented powers, powers that are effectively unmatched in any other Western-style Supreme Court. The court can overturn laws not based on any particular quasi-constitutional provision. The fact that there is no written constitution is part of the whole problem here. Rather, they can kind of strike down laws simply because they deem it unreasonable. They can stop political cabinet appointments because it's unreasonable. They can stop international kind of quasi-treaties because it is unreasonable. There is no such thing as standing. Anyone can bring a lawsuit at any time for any reason. The justices choose their own successors. Uh, they, they, they have a, a, an effective veto over choosing their own successors on the Judicial Selection Committee if they, if they, if they vote in unison, which they always do because they are effectively an, an ideologically homogenous liberal bloc. So in November, when Netanyahu came back to power in his coalition of 64 of the 120 members of the Knesset, their parliament, judicial reform 
was something that they ran on. In fact, it was really one of the only issues that really kind of of all the various parties, Netanyahu's party and the smaller right wing parties actually like wholly agreed upon. Having said that, um, the left has just genuinely melted down, has melted down for months now. There have been weeks and weeks and weeks uh, of hundreds of thousands of people protesting, primarily in the city of Tel Aviv, which is kind of the iconic, uh, more secular, liberal city um, in Israel. They have shut down the highways. They have blocked cars. They have they have hounded Sarah Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu's wife, personally. Um, I, the international left is absolutely egging this on uh, all around the world. Uh, Leo Leibovitz has a piece for Compact Magazine this week using the phrase color revolution to refer to what the international left is trying to do over there when it comes to uh, NGO money flooding in, State Department money flooding in. Uh, Yair Netanyahu, the prime minister's son, uh, accused the State Department of, of inciting the riots and the State Department said, oh, no, 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 we're definitely not doing that. And, you know, if you believe that, then I've got a bridge. To, I've got a bridge to tell you somewhere. Um, so uh, anyway, long story short, um, this kind of uh, came to a T this past weekend when after Bibi's own defense minister, Yoav Galan, said that he would uh, oppose the judicial reforms, he called he caused for a for a pause amidst the unprecedented chaos. Bibi had no choice but to fire him. And then the left took it up a notch yet again. They had hundreds of thousands in the streets, uh, you know, ridiculously high numbers. They basically shut down the airport, Israel's only major airport. There were no outbound flights. The labor unions were going on strike. Billions of dollars of, of foreign money, uh, foreign venture capital money have already fled from Israel's vi very vibrant high tech sector. So the whole thing is just an absolute mess. Bibi has has finally kind of capitulated here, and he has caused for a pause. So he's going to try to seek a compromise with Benny Gantz from the opposition, the, the, the kind of the center to center left, uh, former uh, defense minister there. So there's a lot to say here. Um, it, it's pretty bleak from my perspective. Um, it really just seems to me like a heckler's veto on steroids has won, um, at least for now. It seems to me like kind of like anarchy. And domestic terrorism, frankly, has won the day for now. We, you know, it remains to be seen what the ultimate kind of compromise looks like. I mean, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, maybe Netanyahu can get the better of Benny Gantz and can kind of see this thing through. But as of right now, it, it, it looks quite bad. And you know, I've seen a lot of very bad takes from kind of more kind of uh, neocon, kind of traditionally ultra hawkish people, like Lindsey Graham, for instance. Who, uh, yeah, he's pro-Israel, I guess. But he put out a statement saying, like, "Oh, this is just a big distraction from Iran. Like, like this is distracting from Israel's security issues, which obviously do exist and and are pretty serious." But judicial reform, from my perspective, is just as existential an issue as Iran, as a foreign policy issue. Because unless you rein in that court and actually let the elected people decide, in a fundamentally who decides sovereignty question, that's really what's happening here. The same way that you know the left rioted after Trump in 2016, it's the exact same thing. Unless you align the political making power with the will of the people more closely, you don't have a free society or a society worth defending, frankly. So it's very nasty stuff. Um, these images are are, are pretty galling. Um, you know, American friends of Israel should really just be rooting for um, a, a peace and, and calmness. And from my perspective, ideally, some some semblance of the reform still pass through. But um, I, I'd, be, I'd be curious for all of your thoughts on this topic. Um, the parallels between the left riding over there and the left riding over here, I think, are incredibly stark and obvious and potentially 
foreboding sense of what might happen in, in 2024 if Trump or DeSantis per, uh, prevails as well, I think. My thoughts are quick, so I'll just go first. Uh, my colleague David Harsani at The Federalist had a really uh, interesting article published this week about how Israel's court system is the left's dream. Um, and it's a it makes just, I think, a really excellent point. And it also reminds me of what my colleague Ryan Grimm once said about how the color revolutions that the left used to uh, sort of detest as a, a feature of American foreign policy, a conservative feature. Um, of American foreign policy, or maybe best a neoconservative feature of American foreign policy, are, are there's potential that the color revolution becomes an exportation of uh, an export of wokeism, um, an export of fundamentally anti-democratic leftist values, um, which is kind of the case in this situation. It's it's uh, leftist anti-democracy as opposed to their allegation of sort of conservative anti-democracy and to see our media and our political discourse struggle so deeply to properly contextualize what's happening, I think shows how incapable we are of uh, just fair and reasonable conversation. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the position of the left here seems to be that more democracy is a threat to democracy, um, which is which is the, the position that they hold also with regard to um, with regard to the home home country here, right? So with regard to America, this is also the position of the left that in fact, if if democracy speaks in, in the wrong direction, um, there, there is some kind of existential threat. So that Donald Trump is elected, um, that means that there, that's an existential threat. And uh, I, I think, um, I can't remember who over at American Mind always has, emphasizes the hour of um, the our democracy line, right? They, they really are being literal. I think we've mentioned that. Uh, it is their democracy. Um, it is not that they've stripped it out of any actual content and meaning, right? Because um, these are democratic, small d democratic reforms, right? Um, there are many different ways to set up a court system. Um, so, you know, and Israel's a relatively young country. Um, a lot of these reforms and suggestions to them go back to changes that were made in the 90s. Like this is not a new part of Israeli politics, as far as I understand, and my limited understanding of that country's politics. Um, Netanyahu has proposed these kinds of reforms going back like more than a decade. So this is now that they, they actually got the democratic backing to implement what they said that they've needed to do for quite some time, it's suddenly an existential threat to democracy. So um, yeah, I, I do think unfortunately the dynamics are quite similar uh, similar here and, and similar. And you see it also in cases of Hungary and Poland, anytime there's a democratic result um, that, that opposes the the left on even on some some um, relatively minor issues, let alone some of their their big cultural constructs, uh, that that result is is uh, determined to be illegitimate in some way and a threat to the very democratic system that produced it. Yeah, the reforms weren't a threat to democracy. They were actually going to democratize the system. The reforms were a threat to juristocracy and a left wing controlled juristocracy which in which had total power effectively so the left can't tolerate any threat to its power and consequently they're willing to tear down every single institution to ensure that they retain that power um i think the definitive word on this from what i've seen there's obviously been a ton of commentary on it but i commend everyone to check out jonathan tobin's piece it's uh, titled a resistance coup just defeated israeli democracy really excellently captures it um, you know, from my perspective, a couple points worth making. 
I think I said in maybe last week's episode or a recent episode that the Biden administration's policy towards Israel is regime change. And I think that what we saw in Israel is evidence of it. We'll see if any muckraking journalist actually finds the links, ties, and or coordination between the Biden administration and various groups on the ground. And obviously, uh, left-wing Democrat, left-wing, um, you know, is purported Israel backers in the U.S. who all created kind of an information operation aimed at discrediting these reforms and also perhaps fomenting agitation. Democrat presidents in the past have tried to stir up unrest to undermine BB specifically and Israel more broadly. Uh, and of course, this comes up against obviously the Biden administration bending over backwards to try and get to a new Iran deal, which obviously BB is laser focused on ensuring does not happen. So, you know, setting aside that context, I think, you know, a critical thing for I think Americans to be looking at in this is obviously there are the analogs to the resistance in the US, but I think this was far more extreme, especially when you consider how small and fragile a country Israel is in a sea of enemies or at least former enemies or people who could easily be activated as enemies quite quickly. Uh, and and so, you know, when you have reservists who are going to stand down, you have national security leaders who are threatening essentially to mutiny. You know, this is this would be insurrectionary behavior by any definition the left would use, obviously, on steroids with general strikes and beyond that threaten the very existence of the country. And I think we absolutely, absolutely should expect that here to the extent some Republican president threatens to actually ensure we have a republic here come 2024. All right, let's transition to final thoughts. Who wants to kick us off? Um, I'll kick us off because I think mine is somewhat unrelated uh, to some of the discussions that we've had here, although obviously the thread is how the regime operates. But um, so Representative Matt Gates has suggested that Biden's uh, accuser, Tara Reid, may be brought to testify before Congress at some point. Um, he suggested this a few days ago. Um, I have not been and never will be in favor of this kind of standard of mere accusation of sexual impropriety um, for a conviction in the, in the court of public opinion. Um, but I think it's worth bringing this up, not because it's particularly important, but because of the nuclear level hypocrisy here. Um, Joe Biden, under the Obama administration, when he was vice president, was key in drafting the regulations that enshrined more or less that that standard of mere accusation uh, that that ended up ruining the lives of hundreds of young men in college um, over the, the duration of those regulatory um that those regulations being enforced and those dear colleague letters being enforced. Uh, the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos famously walked back those things. The Biden administration has now reintroduced them um, about six or nine months ago in Title IX. We, we talked, I think, at the time about the definition of sex and changing the definition of sex. And that kind of grabbed all the limelight on, on these Title IX regulations. But it's worth pointing out, they also want to return um, to the Obama standard, which which uh, is vastly, vastly unfair and has been thrown out as a violation of due process of these mostly young men in colleges by a bunch of federal courts. And nevertheless, the Biden administration is persisting um, in in uh, pushing that standard. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that if, if we're going to, you know, uh, if we're going to treat college men this way on on essentially the advice of uh, of, of the Biden administration, uh, it, it is only fair that um, the accusations against Joe Biden be treated equally seriously. Um, 
even though I think on their face, they, they seem quite unserious to me. Uh, but I, I think it's worth pointing out that this is a man who supports the standard uh, of accusation with absolutely no due process uh, for, for other men. Um, so perhaps it's time he stands to it himself. So I'll uh, just briefly follow up on my segment regarding uh, Matt Taibbi. Today, again, we're recording on Wednesday. There was a hearing not really discussed uh, on social media or elsewhere for that matter, where SISA's director, Jen Easterly, was testifying in front of the House Appropriations Committee, asking for a 22% increase in the fiscal year 2024 budget for SISA because SISA has done such a bang up job for us. Now, it's important to note that this agency sits within DHS and it effectively served as a disinformation governance board in the run up to the 2020 election and seemingly thereafter as well. From what I saw in questioning, and I have not seen the full testimony yet, but Republicans did not press SISA's director very hard about the censorship that SISA engaged in coordinating the censorship efforts between big tech companies, as well as these third party, again, oftentimes government funded and deep state run outside agencies and NGOs. She was not very strongly pressed. And this is, remember, SISA is an agency tasked with protecting our infrastructure. And they've basically come to a standard that anything is infrastructure. And if your speech threatens that infrastructure, i.e. if you have questions about election integrity, you are a threat to critical election infrastructure, and that serves as a pretext to then censor that speech. Easterly herself has been quoted as saying that cognitive infrastructure, i.e. our brands, is the most critical infrastructure of all, which obviously is a recipe then for narrative control and mind control at the end of the day. Your government needs to filter information for you so that your critical infrastructure isn't damaged. That is the standard by which SISO, which is asking for a 22% increase in its budget, operates. Republicans not only did not press, but then they didn't really push back. And one line of questioning that I saw where she said, and, and I quote directly, we didn't flag anything to uh, basically be to be silenced at all. She said, we do not do censorship. That's her direct quote. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to see some follow up on that. It's more than disappointing if Republicans don't press and use the power of the purse and every other lever of power to hold these agencies to account that have so egregiously violated our most basic rights. Uh, I'll be super quick here. I, I The two topics that are really kind of taking up most of my brain capacity at the moment are ones we've discussed, which is the political fallout of what appears to be a trans hate crime on a Christian school and this uh, this uh, judicial reform controversy over in Israel, but I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll make a very brief and totally unrelated final thought comment, which is I was out in Los Angeles this past weekend um, for for a wedding, um, which was which was a great time. But uh, my fiance and I were were staying in, in in Santa Monica. The wedding was actually up in Malibu, but Malibu was like a little too remote, I, I think, for for hotel purposes. I don't know how, how familiar the listeners, the viewers are with with Los Angeles. Anyway, Santa Monica, like back in the day, was definitely uh, I think considered like like a very wealthy kind of um, or at least wealthier part of Los Angeles. Um, you know, a lot of kind of Tony restaurants, um, nice condos, townhomes, that sort of thing there. And you know some of that is still true, but two observations just really, really struck me. One is it was 
dead. I mean, just like walking around like during the day at night, just no sense of liveliness, no sense of activity. There were no kind of people just walking around chatting, relatively few cars that you might expect for kind of a, a more well-known area of, of the nation's second largest city. And the second thing that, that kind of you, you cannot escape, which I'm sure we discussed on the show many times, is the homeless problem is just inescapable. I, I mean, like basically no matter where you walk or, or no matter where you go, and the majority of the homeless people, at least that I encountered, were minding their own business. But yeah, there were a number of kind of clearly mentally ill homeless people kind of shouting, cursing at the top of their lungs, and just creates like a deeply inhospitable climate. And, you know, it it, it really does kind of just underscore, um, you know, a lot of what we talk about in the show, which is kind of just what these large, iconic blue cities that have had kind of one party mayors for for years, if not decades, what they have descended to. The other thing that I, I very quickly thought about when I was out there experiencing this is just the obvious contrast to Miami and South Florida in general. And you know, it's really true. I I, I mean, in Miami and Miami Beach, there there really is not that much of a homeless problem. There obviously are some homeless people, but when you consider the fact that we have you know, arguably outside of like Hawaii, I mean, kind of like the, the the best weather probably to be a homeless person in America all year round. It, it is like a shocking dearth, at least relatively speaking, of homeless people relative to some of these big blue cities like L.A., San Francisco. So, um, you know, look, I, I I mean, if you if you're able to work remotely or if you're if you're flexible geographically, I think you have a choice. And, you know, things like this really just do fundamentally change your quality of life, I think. Um, I'm going to dedicate my final thoughts to the traffic patterns between Malibu and Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, I was actually in California a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to Inez about this uh, last week and Santa Monica is actually the end of route 66. Uh, if you go to the Santa Monica pier, it has uh, you know plenty of route 66 or Americana. And um, I was in Santa Barbara actually, but you know, California on paper looks a lot like a failed state. Yeah, I mean, it really, really does. And there are certain parts of California, you walk around and it's bucolic. There are certain parts of California, you walk around and it's an utter dystopia, like a lot of states in the country, but I think on a different scale. Um, when you look at the rolling energy crises that California has, it's, it's just incredibly sad what has become of a state that I think better represented the American dream than just about any other place in the country. That said, um, it's still one of those things where you look around and you see life proceeding as usual, even in what on paper looks like a failed state. And Inez and I were talking about this yesterday on her great podcast. It's not Haiti, um, even though on, on paper there are some trends that look like it's going in a, a horrifying direction. And in fact, in, to some extent, have come to fruition um, uh, to a horrifying degree. And that's really the paradox of America right now. Um, it, it's that the polls like the one that we talked about at the beginning to continue my trend of being a hack um, and break things full circle are very much present in the minds of every single American. I think no matter how healthy their community is, they feel some sense of that shift. Um, but at the same time, many of us are still living in, in healthy communities um, while others just are not. And so there's this 
mismatch or this this disconnect or this unevenness um, in the American experiment right now that I think makes it difficult for us to um, find consensus and uh, have a, a shared sense of urgency um, because it's just a very different experience um, uh, in terms of patriotism, in terms of va- those values we talked about, depending on where you are. So with that, uh, on that really cheerful note, um, on behalf of Ben, Inez, Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.